Welcome to The Curious Conscious Capitalist. I'm Tom Yorton, marketer, author, and CEO. We're brought to you by Conscious Capitalism Chicago. You can find us, ironically enough, at ConsciousCapitalismChicago.org. We created this podcast because we're curious. Curious about the work we do every day. Curious about the role of business in society. And curious about better ways to create, collaborate, and thrive in our changing economy. Mondays don't have to suck. We can have a better relationship to our jobs and the people we work with. We can be conscious capitalists. Greetings, everyone. Welcome again to The Curious Conscious Capitalist. I'm Tom Yorton, your host, and I am very excited today because we're going to get some source code. Uh, for those of you who've been following this podcast, we've been fortunate to talk to fantastic business runners uh, who've been talking to us about how they're applying conscious leadership principles and conscious business principles in their organizations. But today, we get to talk to one of the founders, one of the originators, uh, a true thought leader in the space, uh, Mr. Raj Sisodia. So thrilled to have Raj with us. Um, he's a fantastic and interesting guy, uh, a very powerful thinker. Uh, Raj is an award-winning, best-selling author. Uh, he's written or co-written numerous books, including Conscious Capitalism, Firms of Endearment, Shakti Leadership, and many, many more. Uh, Raj uh, has taught at many prestigious universities. He's currently the F.W. Olin Distinguished Professor of Global Business and Whole Foods Market Research Scholar in Conscious Capitalism at Babson College uh, out in New England. Uh, Raj is the co-founder and chairman emeritus of Conscious Capitalism, Inc. And uh, my personal favorite uh, part of his biography, we'll have to get to this in another podcast because I don't think time will allow for it today. Raj somehow studied at seven different Catholic high schools in four separate countries uh, when he was growing up. I'm not sure how that works, but that seems like uh, a fantastic story worthy of its own podcast. Well, they weren't so. all high schools, started with <laughs> elementary school. Oh, okay. Well, I, I heard that differently, but that's, that's great. And uh, Raj, uh, just thanks so much for being with us and, uh, and welcome to The Curious Conscious Capitalist. Thank you very much, Tom. I'm very happy to be with you. So what brings you to Chicago? I, we, we know that you're working on a new project uh, around businesses becoming healing organizations. Tell us a little bit about that work. Yeah, so uh, I came to Chicago at the invitation of uh, our Conscious Capitalism chapter here, which is actually one of, our, I think, our oldest and a real uh, pioneer you know, in terms of taking the movement out into uh, various cities around. So we have 45 or so chapters now around the world. And this this uh, this chapter was a pioneer, and so we've been talking about. It. I've never actually I've been to most of those chapters, and I was present at the uh, creation of many of those chapters. But this particular one kind of got started on its own, and I had never actually been here, so I wanted to come and uh, be part of this. And also, I've been uh, now working or initiating work on this new project, the Healing Organization, is the working title. And I've never given a talk on that, and so I wanted to use this opportunity really to uh, do a test run with those ideas with a relatively friendly audience yeah. and see, <laughs> see how it lands. Well, I think you're onto something great. And I also think it just harkens, you know, apropos of nothing that we'll talk about today, but the idea of uh, sharing thoughts in progress and that work in progress. I applaud you yes. for that approach. And um, the, the author, Joan Didion, I'll, I'll probably screw up the quote, but something to the effect that I write to learn what I think. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, the, I imagine this whole process is helpful to figuring out what you really think about this topic. It really is. You know, I do find that when you're in front of an audience, and especially you know that you're kind of at the same wavelength with this audience. They do understand they are people who are part of the conscious capitalism world. So it is a co-creation. It is a mutual learning, right? And you get back. And also we're in the process of uh, 
identifying stories about healing organizations. And I think our conscious capitalism community is going to be a great source of that. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Um, and when I think back of the span of your work, at least uh, what I've seen you talk about in the books that you've written, there's a thread, kind of a connective thread in all of that work, that business can be a force for good, that um, capitalism uh, done well and done in a way that you define it very interestingly uh, can be a force for good. Kind of explain the idea of healing. Uh, with that as kind of a backdrop or a context, what is it um, and, and specifically why is it needed today more than ever? Yeah, so, you know, capitalism, as you said, has done a lot. I mean, it's a system that has been around a couple of hundred years in the way that we understand it now, rooted in uh, free markets and free people, understanding the power of markets and people pursuing their own perceived self-interest and so forth. And it has done an extraordinary amount for human beings, for ordinary human beings, elevated living standards, uh, life expectancy, and things like uh, literacy and many other things have gone along with that. So it has certainly been a force for tremendous human progress and advancement. At the same time, it has come with a number of costs, you know, externalities, as economists like to call them. But these are sort of the negative side effects or consequences of pursuing capitalism with a consciousness that is rooted in maximizing profits or making money. Mm -hmm. If that's the only reason why a business exists, then there are going to be, you know, consequences for that in terms of certain uh, players in that system being harmed in certain ways, and certainly the environment, uh, you know, and nature in general are being used and resources are being depleted from that. So we do need to move on from that, and capitalism, like everything else, needs to evolve to higher consciousness, just like we human beings in our lifetimes, and then collectively over generations, we are evolving to higher consciousness. So we do need to move in that direction, and capitalism not only can continue to deliver prosperity and modernity, the benefits of that to the billions that we have now and the nine billion we will have, sometime this century, <clears throat> but we can do so without actually having those negative side effects. In fact, we can do business with a spectrum of positive effects. Mm -hmm. That's what we're finding, that this idea is more powerful than we have actually given it credit for, mm -hmm. or that we've enabled it to be, because we've kind of constrained it. You know, I use the metaphor often of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Mm -hmm. It's the same creature, but it evolves yeah. right, through some natural processes. Uh, <clears throat> and it evolves from a creature that's just about consumption, into a creature of light and beauty that also spreads flourishing in the system in which, it's, in which it lives. And we human beings are capable of being on that journey, and we are, most of us. We do rise above just consumption into making a difference in, in the world and in people's lives and spreading, hopefully, light and beauty. Organizations also can do that. Mm -hmm. They can rise as well. But when we say that the only purpose of business is to make money and shareholder value is the only measure of success mm. and the definition of fiduciary responsibility is limited to shareholder uh, flourishing, then we are saying the conscious that the ca uh, co corporation needs to kind of remain in a caterpillar mode forever. Yeah. We're not I, allowing it to evolve. When I heard you first talk on this, it was very uh, uh, inspiring to me because it, I think too often people, it, capitalism uh, is kind of painted almost in cartoon terms. It's either, uh, you know, wonderful or evil. And the truth is that there are there are other possibilities, other ways to think about it and other ways to evolve and, and move it forward. And, and so I just, I think it's a... I've loved the, the work and kind of the arc of, of the ideas you explore from that context. And so I, I, wanna, I do want to get uh, into this notion of the healing organization and talk a little bit about um, that implies that something needs to be healed. Um, what is the current condition? What, what do people feel, workers feel, employees feel? What is the state of business and what kind of suffering is going on in the world today? 
So it is interesting, you know, the evolution um, over the last century or so, right? By many measures, we are living in the most peaceful time in human history, almost on every dimension, actually. So Steven Pinker has a wonderful book that documents in great detail the decline of violence. So it's called The Better Angels of Our Nature, and showing that fewer people are being subject to violence of different kinds. Uh, fewer people are being impacted by wars, are being killed uh, by terrorists, by murders. Even there's lower rates of accidental deaths in highways. Uh, uh, there's lower, lower levels of bullying in schools. There's less dom oh, no, domestic violence. So we're moving past violence collectively. Of course, there remain pockets of, of violence out there in the world, still too many. But at the same time that physical violence has diminished, it is also true that the levels of psychic stress, and you might even call it psychic violence, mm -hmm. remains very high, and mm -hmm. maybe higher than before, as evidenced by the rise in incidences of depression, anxiety, stress-related conditions of all kinds, you know, eating disorders, body dysmorphic disorders, various other things, especially in prosperous societies, mm -hmm. right, where... Uh, you know, people have some of the basic needs met, but uh, but the uh, the higher level needs are not being met, and people are being subject to a lot of stress. And so, if you look at our collective condition, you know, if you look at the fact that all those uh, all those things are going up that I talked about, a lot of that has to do with work. Mm -hmm. uh, so, work has become a source of tremendous stress for a lot of people. That's where we spend a lot of our waking, most of our waking hours, and that has become a source of stress, source of fear and anxiety for a lot of people. And the data show that quite clearly. So on the one hand, employee engagement worldwide is only 13%. So 87% of people really are not engaged in their work. Hmm. You know, and a big chunk of them are actually very hostile to their own work. You know, they kind of hate it, but they have to be there mm -hmm. just to survive. 88% uh, of Americans feel they work for a company that does not care about them as human beings. That just treats them as a function or an object. Right. Right. Limited right. to the job that they are performing. And that obviously impacts how they feel, not only at work, but also, uh, you know, at home. And so there's all of these consequences of the way in which we work that is having a negative consequences of the emotional, mental, physiological, and psychological health of human beings. <clears throat> Showing up in stress, in chronic disease, in heart attacks being highest on Monday morning, mm. stress levels going up, you know, people saying, thank God it's Friday, looking forward to their time outside of work is the only meaningful and rewarding time in their life, where in fact work can be the source of greatest meaning and joy and fulfillment in a human life. You know, work is a central element in our existence. And if we find meaningful work that is in harmony with who we are, what we are passionate about, it becomes an extension of who we are. It's not just a job or a career, it becomes a calling. I love that idea because it, se it seems like uh, when people talk in terms of work-life balance and we hear things like that, we, we assume that you know, work is this thing that you just have to do. You have to put up with it so you can have time to go do the right. other thing. Yeah. And I love that you're talking about it not being an either-or situation. No. So we say, thank God it's Friday, and then some people say, okay, we need to make work so amazing that we say, thank God it's Monday. And I said, no. Well, what does that say about your weekend then? We say, thank <laughs> God it's Monday, right? <laughs> so we want to say, thank God it's every day, right? Whether it's work or whether it's play or whatever else I'm doing, volunteer. Everything can be meaningful. Everything can be a source of joy. Right, and what we are finding, however, is that uh, for most people, you know, most businesses operate on fear and stress. Mm -hmm. We use those as ways to motivate people, right? And what we really need is not to motivate people and using carrots and sticks, you know, threats and inducements, because that really doesn't work in the long term, and certainly doesn't work for creative kinds of things. Mm -hmm. We cannot really put pressure on somebody to be more creative and innovative. You know, that's a gift that people are capable of giving, but it only happens when you're inspired. 
right? So it's not about motivating people, it's about inspiring people. So and that whole metaphor, in fact, I mean, that whole way of being is, is pretty uh, you know, deeply embedded that we do use the motivation approach and carrots and sticks as a way of getting people to do what is seen as in the corporation's interest. So we need to change the climate at work. We need to, in fact, get people inspired, uh, get people, uh, therefore, engaged, for people to feel safe and for people to feel cared for Right? That's when human beings flourish. So all of that has been going on now for quite some time. We're talking about happiness at work and we're talking about engagement and right, all of those right. kinds of things. But as I looked at that and I said, is that sort of the end point? And I, I started to see that there's a lot of silent suffering still. We might be doing things that on the surface make it you know, better than it used to be. But at the same time, there are many, many things that we are doing at work that are still adding to people's stress, right? that are hurting people in certain ways. And they're not being surfaced because it is largely silent because people don't you know, talk about that when they accept that as a cost of doing business. But I've come to realize that the cost of doing business is unacceptably high in human terms. Mm -hmm. That we're not actually putting a price on suffering. And there's an extraordinary amount of suffering out there in the world generally, mm -hmm. and certainly in the, in the world of work. And it's not only what you know, suffering might be happening to the individual, but then what happens to their children and their families and their life outside of work as well. All of that is the... A ripple effect or a consequence of how we create conditions at work. So right now for many, many people, I would say the vast majority, work is a source of stress. It's a source of earning a living, but it's also a, stress of, uh, a source of stress and therefore causing all kinds of uh, hurt and pain in their lives and, and spreading then, as I said, into their families. It doesn't have to be that way. That's the greatest thing here. That, you know, this is, most of this is unnecessary. A lot of it is self-inflicted or inflicted by us on each other. It serves no higher purpose. It is unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And we can, in fact, achieve even better results by not imposing that on people, by actually reducing suffering, but also elevating joy. Right? We, and that's really what we can aspire to through all of our uh, businesses and any kind of organizations. Can we alleviate suffering in some way and can we improve or enhance uh, joy in people's lives? And we're finding lots of inspiring stories of businesses that are doing just that. You know, there's so many <clears throat> ways I could go off of that uh, in branches to the conversation. I, I wanna pick one angle. Um, I'm gonna bounce an idea off you, uh, kind of in response to the ideas you shared in the last couple of days. And um, if, if we're using almost like a, a health metaphor or a wellness metaphor and healing and suffering, <clears throat> is there acute versus chronic? Uh, so let me go a little deeper into that. One of the, a couple of the examples that you share last night about companies who rise to the, uh, another level and, uh, and respond, uh, where there was a, a Texas-based company just with the, the recent hurricane who came to the aid of the community uh, in a remarkable way. And uh, there's uh, the, uh, the Indian company, uh, Tata, is it? Yes. Um, in the, so talk a little bit about, just briefly give an example of what those, what those organizations did. And I'm wondering, is it easier for companies to respond in those situations because the need is so visible and it's intense and it's there? It's almost like uh, a car crash versus uh, high cholesterol. Sure. Yeah, you know right. what I'm saying? Right. And, 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 and is there, how do, we, how do we find a way to shine a light on some of those more chronic situations sure. so people can respond with the same sense of urgency that they might with a more acute situation? Sure. So those stories that you mentioned, the one in uh, Houston is HEB, which is a, uh, a regional grocery chain headquartered in, Saint, uh, in San Antonio. And they have actually long been known for their... Uh, 
extraordinary responses to crises situations that arise, whether they be tornadoes or hurricanes or, or anything else. So they actually have a whole disaster relief operation. And you know, they are very much geared to actually getting at sites that need help even before FEMA and Red Cross show up. Mm-hmm. You know, there's HEB. Mm-hmm. And they're going to heroic lengths to make sure that they get open, you know, back open because people need, you know, a lot of these are necessary things for people to survive. And they are deploying resources and getting volunteers from the rest of their system to fly in and get helicoptered in uh, into those locations. And they adjust their manufacturing protocols and so forth. So they are focusing everything on the essentials, you know, not producing 50 varieties of cereals, but basically getting the basic things to people as many as possible in a short amount of time. So, but again, they respond to these episodic events, which are crises, as you said, but their capacity to do so would not be there unless they had planned for that. And that's part of their ethos. Right? So it's sense. not something that they're rising to heroic lengths because this thing happened. They know that these things are likely to happen and they have not only the, uh, the sort of systemic infrastructure to do that, but they also have the psychic infrastructure. In other words, they care. Mm-hmm. You know, so they, want, they care about their communities and they care about the people in those communities. So they have an orientation towards those communities, which is about being there you know, when, when times are tough and doing what they can. And they can do an extraordinary amount because yeah. they do have That's a remarkable story. We told. And, and, and that's what got me onto this. But, but I love the idea that it's a both and. It's not that they only respond to an acute situation or a crisis situation. They have the capacity yeah. to do that because they're hardwired that's right. to be that kind of organization. That's right. And the same thing with the Tatas. So the Tatas have been around for 135 years in India. And they've always had a healing orientation or a higher purpose. I mean, to me, those things are now melding a little bit. For Tatas, it was always, what does India need? When they started, India was a British colony. You know, it was deeply underdeveloped. They didn't have infrastructure, industry. You know, the colonial mindset is basically, you use uh, the colony as a source of raw materials and as a captive market for finished products, mm-hmm. right? But you don't invest in infrastructure and you, know, you don't actually do any manufacturing or production there. So they created the first steel plant in India because India needed steel. They, they set up the first hydroelectric power plant because India needed electricity mm-hmm. and so forth. So they were a pioneer in many ways, always looking at not where's the maximum profit potential, but where's the greatest need you know, for society. Mm-hmm. And they also have a long and deep tradition of caring for people, uh, their communities and the people who work there, and of course their customers. So when a crisis occurred, when there was a terrorist attack on Mumbai in 2008, uh, they were targeted as kind of the epicenter of that terrorist attack because their iconic Taj Mahal Hotel, the Taj Mahal Palace and Towers Hotel, which is uh, well over 100 years old now, And that too, the creation of that also came about because the founder of the Tatas, Jamshed Ji Tata, once tried to check into a hotel on a business trip in India, and he was told, sorry, this is only for British. (laughs) Now, this is in his own country, he could not check into a hotel. Wow. And he said, well, I guess India needs a great hotel too. (laughs) And so he set about creating what at at the time was the world's leading hotel with innovations, technological innovations, service innovations beyond anything that existed. And it was proudly open to everybody. Right? And so that's kind of the heritage and the ethos of that property. It, today, it's a, it's a place where you will find heads of state, you will find uh, you know, government leaders, you will find business leaders, you know, actors, celebrities. Mm-hmm. At any point in time you go into that hotel, you're going to see a who's who of people in India. Right? So the terrorists targeted that and they, they made it the epicenter of their attack. You know, several of them spread out in the hotel. They had maps and blueprints. They opened fire on, uh, you know, on the ballroom. You know, they were targeting. They knew exactly what was where. 
And so in the middle of all of that, you know, there was a heroic effort made by the general manager of that hotel and all the employees, none of whom left, stayed there to protect the guests, to save the guests, to, you know, to get them to safety. 11 employees sacrificed their own lives in the process. That's remarkable. The general manager lost his wife and two children also in that attack and yet stayed on the job for another 72 hours because he could not afford to grieve at that moment. There were lives at stake still, Yeah. you know. And so, you know, all of that happened. And at the end of that, when, you know, finally the terrorists were captured and, you know, the leadership of the company had already started responding and helping people in the community and so forth. And they created a whole set of things to help people financially, but also emotionally and in terms of health, not only the employees, their families, survivors, you know, people in the neighborhood, uh, you know, street vendors, even people who were attacked at the railway station, all of them were helped by this company. And they went to extraordinary lengths, you know, providing it's lifetime such benefits. Such a remarkable so story, absolutely. But all of that came because there's an ethos there of love and care, right? And the employees never hesitated you know, when this thing happened, you know, and I asked Karambir Singh Kang later when I met him, you know, I said, what made this, you know, how could people respond like this? Because that's not typical, right? In a typical corporation, nobody's going to stick around because, you know, it's all profit maximizing. I'm going to save myself, right? Yeah. But they said the Tatas have given us so much love and care over the years that when something like this happened, you know, this is like our home. This is our guests are like our family. We're going to protect our home and protect our family. Absolutely. Right? So there's no it's question amazing. about it. It was interesting, a contrast that happened literally a year before that, I think, in Calcutta, there was a hospital that caught fire. And I think it was a government hospital, I'm not sure. But in that fire, you know, the doctors and nurses immediately abandoned the place, right? And about 100 people out of the 180 or so that were uh, uh, admitted at the time died in that hospital because all of the you know, people in, in charge basically abandoned it yeah right so that's a different organization different culture different values different mores and you can see what happened there versus what happened here you're listening to the curious conscious capitalist brought to you by conscious capitalism chicago and those are such uh, they're beautiful stories and amazing stories the, the links that people will go to if they truly feel engaged in uh, the love of an organization there's a different level of commitment to it what do you so Let's talk then kind of shifting. What are the things that are keeping the typical company maybe closer to home in America? Uh, what's the norm here and why, why isn't that the case now? What's, what's working against it? Yeah. Well, there is a very sort of dehumanized, dispassionate approach and narrative to business. And by the way, business schools are very complicit in this. You know, we've been teaching for close to a century now, you know, people about what is business and how to lead. And we, we don't teach about how to lead so much as how to manage. Mm -hmm. And we take as almost gospel the idea that the only purpose is to maximize profit, you know, and so forth. So people are treated as means to that end, as functions and objects. Their well-being is not inherently important, only to the extent that it helps us make more profit. So this narrative about business has evolved where, you know, it's all about self-interest of everybody. So the owners and shareholders are all about maximizing their returns. Everybody who comes to that business now thinks the same way. How can I maximize my returns? Mm -hmm. So everybody becomes a short-term maximizer of their own perceived you know, well-being. So you know, employees want to get paid as much and work as little as possible, and customers want the lowest price on every transaction, and they'll switch vendors at the first you know, sign of a lower price, suppliers will cut costs and cut corners, society will tax you as much as possible. Everybody becomes a taker from that system. So that's kind of the way in which it's evolved, which means in a way everybody's using everybody else. <laughs> 
And when you're using somebody else, you're using your employees, even using your customers to achieve your goals, you don't actually care about them and their well-being, only to the extent that it helps you achieve your their goals. Their means to an end. Right? And therefore, even though technically you're serving them, you're serving your customers with your products, but really you're in a way exploiting them. Right? You're trying to sell them stuff. Maybe they don't need it. Hmm. Sell as much, charge as much. You know, use misleading messaging and advertising and overpromise and underdeliver and all of that right mm. so you're you're using people and therefore you are inflicting a lot of you know negative consequences you can call them ways of hurting people or having a negative impact on them in some ways right so you might be impacting the health of your customers or you know we spend 1.3 trillion dollars a year on marketing in this country uh, you know, that buys a lot of influence on how people think about life. <laughs> and we convince you that unless you do this, you know, you can't be happy or nobody's going to like you, etc. I mean, there's a lot of psychic impacts that we have. So there's a lot of hurt being caused as a side effect or a consequence of the way in which we do business, which is single-mindedly, resolutely focused on one thing, which is profit. And that's a very different mindset than one which is of service and of care, which said that businesses exist to serve, and we're going to serve our employees, our customers, our communities. Uh, and when we do all of those things well, by the way, we serve our shareholders exceedingly well. You know, our research and the research of many others shows that that actually is the path to long-term profitability and shareholder wealth as well. And I think that's so important because, um, you know, hard-bitten, hard tough business runners, uh, they want to perform. They want to make sure that the performance doesn't suffer that. Uh, that, hey, is this somehow soft? Is this somehow squishy? Is this somehow, you know, not what I really need to be focused on? But if the financial performance is actually outpacing organizations that don't do that, there's not even that argument to make. Uh, there isn't, you know, but it matters how you make the money. Right? So money, profits are important. Businesses need to be profitable. It is socially irresponsible not to be profitable. You are using society's resources. If you're not generating a surplus on those, you know, business by definition is meant to generate a surplus. Business creates value in the world. Mm -hmm. But if you're not, then, you know, you're extracting value. You're almost a parasite. So being profitable is important, but it matters a great deal how you make the money. Because mm -hmm. you can make the money by squeezing employees, impacting their families, their children, communities, suppliers, you know, everything, the future. Mm -hmm. You know, we act like the future is not, a, you know, it's not going to be there. I mean, there is a future and we're impacting that in a dramatic way by our decisions today. So it matters how you make the money. And these businesses make more money by doing it in the right way. And they create many other kinds of wealth. Businesses don't just create, but they can also destroy many kinds of wealth. Mm -hmm. It's financial, but also intellectual capital, social capital, which is trust and cohesion in society, emotional well-being, which is operating from love and care, not fear and stress, spiritual well-being, having meaning and purpose. Uh, it's the impact on the culture, what defines a good life. It's the impact on our bodies. It's the impact on the environment. These are all the consequences of how we operate as a business. And it's possible to operate in a way that creates a spectrum of positive effects in all those areas for all your stakeholders for as long as you're around. And a traditional business will say we're all about making money and everything else that happens is a side effect. Yeah. Right? Because we're not focused on that. And I'm sorry, side effects tend to be negative. Well, the reality is there's no such thing called a side effect. We do things, there are effects. And for too long, we have absolved businesses of the responsibility of those so-called side effects because we call it externalities. You know, we can pump our you know, smoke into the air and sure. our pollutants into the rivers and what we're doing into the souls of the people who work there. We don't see it, but it's there, right? The sludge that's going out every day into <laughs> those exactly. souls. So all of that is seen as the cost of doing business. And as I've said, the human cost of doing business is unacceptably high and it is not measured. We put a price tag on everything, 
accept suffering and accept those things you know that i talked about so that's what we need to surface now you know there's an expression you will you will believe it when you see it right i love that twist on that yeah on that because expression. you know if you're not looking for this and if you're oblivious you're single mindedly focused on one thing that's all you're going to see everything related to profit right but if you're actually looking at people with wide open eyes and hearts and you're going to see the suffering you're going to see what's silent what is not surfaced we need to surface that which is unspoken and unexpressed so so good to hear that and uh, you know again you talk in some of the remarks that you shared and um, perhaps it'll be in the book that comes downstream from this um, that biz- there's language of business and metaphors in business it's 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 not a game it's not a machine it's not a math problem it's not war yet we business uses a lot of that language and yeah. cloaks itself in that stuff yeah. if it is not those things what is business what what should it be well it's one of the most human things that we do it's about the real lives of real people it's about elevating human flourishing it's about serving it's about creating multiple kinds of value right it's about creating a world in which everybody matters and everybody can win you know business has been played for too long as a, a game of winners and losers right? especially coming out of those mindsets uh, that you talk about uh, it doesn't have to be that way so business is really ultimately about service it's really ultimately about you know elevate we talked about conscious capitalism exists to elevate human flourishing and that's really what this is you know it's about multifaceted flourishing of all kinds business is the most powerful extraordinary institution you know capitalism is one of the most powerful ideas that we've ever had but we can do even much better than what we have done so far because if we elevate the consciousness and understand the full impact of what what this has you know we can then create a way of doing business that that actually has all positive effects mm-hmm. and everybody wins in in this way of doing business it's uh fantastic and um you know thinking about this because all of this exists within a broader context and if you think about and again I'll, I'll go to the united states where i live and what i know the best we live in this cultural context is media context and social media context that is constantly whipping us into a frenzy you talked about stress and some of the the negative consequences of some of the signs of suffering and so business would exist within that why do you think well in that's uh, i i think in the media world that's because we're looking for eyeballs we're looking for attention and that's proven to be a good way to get attention is to be provocative and to constantly provoke people yet that seems to be to be profoundly unhealthy regardless of your political stripes or orientation on any of that it's just we're constantly in that state of uh, fight or flight it seems and that seems to be the intent so within that context why is business particularly well suited to be a force for good you touched on it briefly but there are other institutions why is business the place for this to happen because in a free society rooted in free markets and free people business you know uh, controls dominates the lion's share of what happens out there so in the us business accounts for roughly 20 trillion dollars of 25 trillion of total activity every year government is 3 and 1/2 nonprofits are 1 and 1/2 trillion business is 20 trillion so just by that measure alone business you know looms large in our life way beyond mm-hmm. other institutions and generally speaking that's a good thing because when government is too large and too dominant you know it's not only bureaucratic it's inefficient it's ineffective and can be a source of great corruption as well and and it takes away freedoms 
right? And nonprofits in many ways exist in order to make up for some of the shortcomings, things that government cannot do well and businesses haven't done well. So, you know, businesses in the right way when it's, you know, when, you know, when the fact that they dominate the sector, uh, overall economy in that way, is rooted in freedom and voluntary exchange. And if businesses are operating with high consciousness, and that's a great thing, right? But when businesses are operating with a low consciousness, and profit maximization is a low consciousness because it is inherently self-serving, it is instrumental, it uses people as a means to our end, and it's a very narrow perspective on the impacts that we have. But when that is the dominant ethos, right, then we're going to do all kinds of things in order to achieve that, that are going to have negative impacts on people's lives, mm -hmm. right? So whether it's, you know, the social media or whether it's selling people certain kinds of food or whatever it is, I mean, every field, you know, when we're looking at it only through that lens and we're going to make certain decisions, when we look at it through the lens of purpose and, you know, values, right, and impact on alignment with society, then we're going to look at it in a different lens. The great story there is that the, the economic potential and the profit potential is even greater when you look at it that way, right? It's not that we're going to say we're going to, it's not either or, it's not a choice, but you know, we're either going to be profitable and make money or we're going to be doing things that are good for people and good for society. That is the pathway to sustained true profit. Yeah. Because there's a lot of false profit, just like we have false profits, <laughs> right? Because it is seeming profit, but actually it's coming at the expense of, right? So you made this money. You know, there's a wonderful quote by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. He said, I would not give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. We've operated with a simplistic mindset on this side of complexity. Business about profit. Profit is revenue minus cost. Maximize revenue, minimize cost. Very simple, right? That's how you make maximize profit. You maximize revenue by selling as much, charging as much, whether people need it or not, whether it's good for them or not. And you minimize cost by paying people as little as possible, by denying them benefits, by externalizing costs onto society, by squeezing your suppliers and pushing burdens out into the future. So you achieved your goal. But that's not worth anything. That's worth less than, it's worth less than zero because you're extracting value. You're not a value creator, you're a value extractor, you're a parasite on society. So that's one way of being. Then you have the other side of complexity. Once you get through understanding, you know, how the whole thing works and how it's all an inter interconnected, interdependent system and how we can achieve higher levels of impact when we have purpose and meaning and all of that and, and higher levels of employee engagement and motivation and commitment when people are self-organizing, self-managing and self-motivating, you know, you give them the purpose and you create the conditions and, you know, people just go out there and do it, right? So there's a simplicity to that. But you have to traverse the complexity in order to get there, right? Because these companies really run themselves and they're constantly innovating and creating. Right? That's an amazing way to think about it. <clears throat> I love that idea. Um, in the time that we have left, um, uh, there's just a couple other questions I want to get at. What, what is the role of the individual in alleviating his or her own suffering versus within, within a business? So how much is on the company to help with and how... Or is that not the right way to think about it? No, I do think we have responsibility. You know, we have free will. You know, we are, most of us are educated and aware and so forth. And, but we are caught up in certain paradigms and certain traps. But I do think we have, we have uh, you know, we all are on a journey and we should be evolving and growing and learning how to, you know, as I say, physician, heal thyself. You know, we need to heal ourselves as well. But I do think businesses can play a role in that too. Because very often people are caught up in that and they don't, you know, they don't have perspective. They can't see outside of that. So I think businesses can even help bring some of that wisdom to people, right? So the, the, the suffering that is self-inflicted, 
which is as a result of the patterns of thought that we have and the way we interpret the world and the way we explain things to ourselves, there's a lot of knowledge and understanding about how to change that. And I think businesses can bring that to people as part of you know, their own you know, wellness and other initiatives that they have because you know, when people transcend that, then they also can be you know, more productive and more engaged and more all of that. So it's a matter of enlightened self-interest. So, so I do think it's not absolving individual responsibility, but it's also saying businesses can play a role there. They can play an even greater role in sort of the interpersonal dynamics of how you set up, you know, any system operates, the behavior is a function of three things. The purpose of that system, it's the interconnections that exist within that system and how those relationships are structured, and then it's the individual players in that system. And the biggest impact is with the purpose, second biggest is with the relationships, and the third is the players. Mm -hmm. You can replace all the players, and if you don't change the other two, the same behavior will result. Right? So we can also change the way in which we structure work, because the way we work isn't working. And you know the fact that we have too many managers and bosses and supervisors. You know, in in a, in the in a, in a good organization, you don't need very much of that at all. As I said, people are self-organizing, right. self-managing, self-motivating. Nobody wants to be managed, bossed, or supervised, really. Mm -hmm. So we create conditions in which that's not necessary. You have coaching and you have leadership. Mm -hmm. That's something we want and need, right? So we create those conditions, and we can then heal those interpersonal dynamics. A lot of which arise from that toxicity of the superior subordinate so-called relationships, right? And then we move beyond that, I think, to also surface things that are going on because, you know, we have this artificial separation between the personal and the professional, you know, that, you know, you keep what's personal at home and, you know, there's a wall there. And I don't think it needs to be there because people are whole human beings and we can allow them to be whole human beings at work. And if there is suffering going on in their lives, that is something that we can actually help with once we surface it. So businesses are capable, just like we talked about HEB and Tata's and others, you know. Businesses are capable of that once you understand what's going on with your people because unless you have a listening post, you will never hear it. Right. So we need to have mechanisms whereby that can be surfaced. Fantastic. Hey, Raj, just one last question. So uh, where are you in the journey uh, on this particular project? Uh, and the people who will be listening to this are people who are in this community, who are running conscious businesses. Can they be useful to you? Can they do anything that can help you in this work? Well, thank you. Yeah, we're just starting this process. We have just uh, agreed to a book contract, but which means that uh, the book will actually not be out for maybe 18 months from, uh, you know, until about 18 months. Uh, so there's a lot of research we're going to, you know, this is a journey of exploration. We're not coming in with the answers. We're coming in with questions. And we are finding, you know, stories of companies. So uh, what we are looking for at this time is examples of ways in which companies are actually behaving as healing organizations. Right? So if there are stories uh, that uh, people know about or companies, and typically these tend to be smaller companies, you know, in, in, uh, in various parts of the country or beyond. So we'd love for people to share those with us. Uh, my email is rsisodia, R-S-I-S-O-D-I-A at babson.edu. And please, by all means, share examples of stories that have inspired you uh, and shown that companies can be places of healing. Well, that's wonderful. And I suspect you're going to get some help from uh, the folks out there in the ether here because this is a, an amazing work that you're doing and a super interesting project. So I just wanted to thank you again for taking the time to be with us today and sharing these thoughts and these ideas. Uh, really inspiring. And uh, we wish you the very best in this work. Thank you very much, Tom. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to The Curious Conscious Capitalist. You can find us at ConsciousCapitalismChicago.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.